Hi, I'm Michael. This is my wife, Libby. It is our uh, privilege to read this Advent reading. We've been here for a little bit over a year. Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. It is a four-week period in which the church remembers the promises of Jesus' first coming and looks forward to his promise to come again. Thus, Advent is a season of tension. Christ has come, and yet not all things have reached completion. And as we live in that tension, we do so with the realization that Christ has come, and the flickering candles that we light remind us, as John's gospel tells us, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we continue our journey through Advent, we do so lighting the fourth candle, which represents peace. This is called the angel's candle, for it points toward the angels who, when they announced the birth of Christ, said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As we light this candle, we remember that we were at enmity with God and one another, but Christ came so that we may have peace with God and one another through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Please pray with me. O promised Christ, we are a world at war. Our peace depends on your coming. We are a sinful people. Our pardon depends on your coming. We are full of good intentions, but weak at keeping promises. Our only hope of doing God's will is that you should come and help us do it. Lord Christ, our world awaits for your peace, for your pardon, and for your grace. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Micah 7, verses 8 through 20, and John 1, verses 1 through 18. Here's from Micah 7. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. And that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And our second reading is from John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the Lord, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, hey, good evening. Merry Christmas. Uh, It's good to have you all here tonight. Well, hey, we've been going through the prophet Micah over the last four weeks. And one of the things about Micah is it's a very dark book. But there are four words of comfort and hope that are in the book. And each one of them actually zero in, they point forward to the events of Christmas. And of all those four, none is more astounding than the one tonight. In other words, if you haven't been here for the first three, you're getting the best one, all right? And here's why. Because this passage actually shows us what it is like to experience the love of God what it's like to experience it. Let me give you an example. Uh, D.L. Moody, he's, historically, he's, he's known in some circles, well-known in a lot of circles, but he's an American evangelist and publisher in the 19th century. But later in his years, in his ministry, he told about a story back in the day when she was walking on the streets of New York City. And at some point as he's walking... He had an experience, and this is what he writes. He said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. In other words, Moody was saying this. I had a moment in which I had this overwhelming experience of God's love, and I actually had to say, God, please stop. 
It's too much. Well, something like that is taking place right here in our text in Micah this evening. For at the close of the passage, which is what closes out the entire book, there's this closing doxology. It's this crescendo. And there's these few words in which at this doxology, the author writes this, who is a God like you? It's a rhetorical statement, right? He's so stammering. He's in awe. And what's so stunning about it is what he's in awe of God about. He's in awe at God's mercy. He's in awe of God's steadfast love. And if you read through the book of Micah and you see these oracles of judgment that these people deserve, at the very end, this is the last thing you would expect, and that's exactly where it ends. And you see, that's, that's actually the essence of, of Christmas. That in, in one way or another, here's, here's the, the, the point of this passage, is that somehow you and I would catch a glimpse and be in awe of a God who is not just middle class in mercy, but as one New Testament author puts it, is rich in mercy. And that if you grasp it, that we, like the text, would come to a point where we would just say, who is a God like you? There is no one like you. So, we have a long ways to go to get there. But there's three things we're, we're, we're going to walk through tonight. First is the darkness. The secondly is the foundation. And then the last thing is the enfleshment. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. So Father, what we do not know, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, well firstly, the darkness. Uh, the passage opens, and there's this image, and it says that they're sitting in darkness. This community is sitting in darkness. And let me ask you, have you ever sat in a pitch black room? Like you can't see your hand in front of your face? Have you ever sat with something like that? You don't know where you really are in the room. You don't know what's in front of you or behind you. It's just pitch Black. Well, that's the picture of these people, metaphorically speaking, that they're sitting in darkness. And in the scripture, when it talks about darkness, it's, it's talking about being a place of calamity and despair, of ignorance and folly, because you've lost your way. You're no longer walking in light of God's truth. And that's where this community sits. You know, commentators note that this historical context is one, and we've talked about it over the series, but powerful elites in the society had, through ancient laws of credit, had basically enslaved the lower class. In the marketplaces, they had rigged the scales so that people would pay more and they would give out less. On, On top of this, judges and lawmakers were taking bribes. And then the actual religious life of this community was one in which they were going to the temple, but they were also going to high places, 
to worship other gods. And so one commentator notes this, the political, the civil, the judicial, the religious, the social, every part of the culture was rampant with corruption. And that's why the passage opens and they're sitting in darkness. It's because of who they are. It's because of what they've become. And yet in verse 8, there is this confession by the community that's left. And this is what they say. They say this, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. They are honest with who they are. They are saying, what we are getting right now, the place we are at, the darkness we are in, it is because of us. I wonder if for a moment we might consider the darkness in our own lives. I know even as I was talking about the context of, you know, this particular historical setting, you might not be a judge or a lawmaker here tonight. You might not be in a position of huge amount of power, but can I say something? It it's really comes down to one thing. Who are you living for? Because at the end of the day, if you were to take all of, you know, the community of Micah, at the end of the day, you know, for each one of them, from top down, it comes down to one thing. They were living for themselves. That's the darkness. You know, um, last weekend I was in the kitchen, Sunday afternoon. I'm on my phone, checking some scores. And from the bedroom, I hear Amanda, my wife, say, hey, honey, and, you know, like, could you do this? And when I heard that, here's what was going on in my head. First of all, grumbling. And the second was an internal voice that would not say out loud what I was thinking, but was basically this. Can't you see I'm doing something here? It's living for self. Now, that's a very easy thing to say. That's a pretty, maybe small thing, but even the very nature, the fact that that's my heart's knee-jerk reaction in the midst of a normal day ought to tell me something about ourselves. Here's what's interesting. There's even a religious form of this. You know, there's... There's people who are very moral and very religious, and they obey all the rules. But it's for themselves. It's so that they can look good. It's so that they can look down on those people. There's so many different ways of living for self. And here's the point. I'm I'm not trying to belabor this point to, in some ways, condemn myself or you, but rather, I want you to realize something. If you are going to be in stammering awe of God's mercy, you have to know the depth to which you need it. And here's the counterintuitive message of Christmas, is is that the only way you're going to be in awe of God's steadfast love and his mercy is to see you need it. But secondly, what's remarkable is the foundation of this this love and this mercy. 
You know, one of the things reading through this passage this week that was really surprising was the brazen confidence of the people in Micah's day that God would actually show them love and show them mercy. Let me give you a couple examples because it it, it astounded me. Um, At the beginning of verse 8, this is what they write. It says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And then in verse 9, it says this, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And please note, this is at a time in which Israel's being defeated. They're in exile because of their unfaithfulness to God. And yet in the midst of that, they're saying, God's going to be my light and God's going to bring me out of the darkness. And by the way, light means God's goodness and his favor and blessing. In other words, even while this community is facing judgment and discipline from God, they are confident that God is going to show them favor and blessing and goodness. And the confidence continues throughout the passage. I'll give you one more. Verse 14. This is a prayer by the community in which they're pleading to God. They say this, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in forest in the midst of a grand land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. It's this It's this confident plea that God would be their shepherd, that he would guide them, protect them, and lead them. And in the places of Bashan, it's the fertile country by one of the rivers. The the Gilead was an area well known for its good pasture land. In other words, in this time in which they're in the darkness, they're confident God's going to take them to a place in which there's abundant life. Those are only a couple examples. There are more in this passage, but... I want you to see there is this staggering swagger, confident that God is going to show them mercy and a steadfast love. And the question is why? Like, why can they be so sure of that? Why can they be so confident? Well, the foundation for this confidence is actually tucked away in verses 18 through 20. So let's Let's look at that one more time. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There are two things that are foundational for God's mercy. And the first is tucked away in verse 18, because it says, he does not retain his anger forever, and 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 the answer is this, because he delights in steadfast love. Now that's interesting, and here's why. Because it doesn't say he has to show steadfast love. It doesn't say he begrudgingly shows steadfast love. It doesn't even say, you know, I'm obligated to. What does it say? It says he delights to. Check that. He enjoys it. In other words, foundational for God's mercy and his love, it's his character. It's who he is. It's what he loves to do. But secondly, 
At the end of the very end, verse 20, it says this, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That, that word sworn, it means God has made promises to. Ages ago, he made a promise to Abraham and Jacob, and it's saying he's faithful to keep them. And here's, here's what's so significant, that the foundation for God's mercy and his love is based on his character and his promise. And here's why that's such good news. It means it's not based on who we are. Because we're not worthy of it. And just think for a moment, because that flips the script on how I'll just put it this way, even if you're a Christian tonight, functionally speaking, most of us live as if God's mercy and his love is dependent on our performance. So some of us think, or we live, we say this, if I can just stay away from a major sin for a few months, then God will bring me into the light. Or some of us might say, if I am... If I'm just really active in my faith, and I'm really disciplined, then, most assuredly, then God will show me steadfast love and mercy. But there's a problem with living that way, isn't there? Because if you're like me, don't you recognize that your life is constantly fluctuating between good weeks and bad weeks? Mine are like that. It, it jerry-rigs our hearts. Because if, if, we, if we think God loves us because of our performance, then we live lives out of fear or out of pride. And that's why Micah is so breathtaking. Because it says there's a God who delights to show mercy. It's his very character. A God who has made promises that he is faithful to keep. So why? Why could they be so brazenly confident in God's steadfast love and his mercy? Because it's who he is and it's what he's promised. Now, lastly, the enfleshment. You might be sitting there and thinking this. Well, maybe these are just words, right? I mean, sometimes people say things. Sometimes people promise things. And, you know, they don't follow through. I mean, sometimes people change, right? Sometimes people back down from what they promise. It gets too hard. And how might we know that God's mercy and his steadfast love is sufficient for our darkness? How might we know that God's steadfast love and mercy is there for us who need it? Well, we'll listen again to the first few verses of the Gospel of John. It reads this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14 it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
In other words, as John pens his gospel, and he says Jesus is the Word, the one who was with God and was God, the one who made all things in space, time, and history, he put on flesh. It's the enfleshment. Later on, in chapter 1 of John, John the Baptist will look at Jesus and point, and he will say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he came. In other words, he came to fulfill what the prophet Micah foretold. Did you catch the two images in verses 18 through 20 of what Micah talks about God will do? The first is this, that he will tread our iniquities underfoot. That is a powerful visual. And you know what that visual is? It's of an invading army coming in and defeating an enemy, an enemy so bad that they just run them over. They run them over. And the image here is taken from that, and it's actually an image of God trampling and crushing and defeating our sin victoriously. The second image is this, casting all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Imagine, if you will, a chest. And inside that chest are thousands and thousands of strips of paper. And on them are written all of our sins in particular. And they're locked in the chest. And then they're taken by boat approximately 125 miles off of the Mariana Islands. And after being sealed, they're latched to a large rock which weighs a ton. And it's tossed overboard. And it goes down and it goes down to the deepest part of the ocean, 6.8 miles to the Mariana Trench. And there at the bottom lays the chest. The point being, no one can retrieve it. And that is what Jesus has come to do, and that is what Jesus has done. Do you understand that the mercy and the steadfast love of God, you have to see the enfleshment, because what is it? Think about it this way. God looked down at your condition, at my condition, at our misery, at our pain, and our rebellion, and our sin. And what did he do? He became weak. He became one of us. And he was willing to lay his life down for you and for me. Why? Because he delights. He delights to show mercy. Why? Because his character is one of steadfast love. And how can you and I be so confident and brazen and have a swagger about God's love? Because as John writes, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Are you stammering for words yet? Do you see your darkness? Do you see the foundation? Do you see the enfleshment? That though we sit in darkness, God has come to bring us into the light through his son Jesus. And if we look to him, he is more than sufficient. And as you look, 
Listen, the only response left is to echo exactly what Micah has said. Who is a God like you? Who is like you? Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you tonight for this news of your first coming. We thank you that though our darkness is real, your grace is more than sufficient to meet it. Would you continue in this season to reveal the great love with which you have loved us? Would you help us to see the width and the depth and the height and the length of the love of God in your son Jesus? And would you change us? Amen. Well, as we continue this evening, one of our traditions as you came in, you probably saw the candles. If you don't have one, please go back and grab one. Um, we're going to light those. I'll invite John and Holly to come forward. Um, they'll essentially come down the aisle. They'll light. Obviously, you know, be careful, right? Um, kids, you got it. Great. And um, we'll close out um, singing with the light, symbolizing the light, has, the, the darkness has not overcome it. And um, please stand.